The following is a reading from the diary of Cotton Mather, the 31st year of a forfeited life. February 12th, Lord's Day, 1692. This day having finished the 30th year of my age, through the wonderful patience and goodness of God, I preached at my congregation as agreeable to things as I could. Upon Psalm 102, verse 24, I said, O God, take me not away in the midst of my days. After this, I set myself to preach over the whole epistle of Jude, as being a rich portion of Scripture fit for our time and place. But I intermingled many occasional texts. About this time, I had many wonderful entertainments from the invisible world and the circumstances of a young woman horribly possessed with devils. The damsel was cast into my care by the singular providence of God, and accordingly, besides my care to relieve her, to advise her, to observe the prodigious things that befell her, in which I have written a narrative, I procured some of my devout neighbors to join with me in praying for her, we kept three successive days of prayer with fasting on her behalf, and then we saw her delivered, for which we kept a time of solemn thanksgiving. But after a while her tormentors returned and her miseries renewed, and my neighbors being now either too weary or too busy to do as afore, though they made much prayer daily with her as well as for her, I did alone in my study fast and pray for her deliverance. And to my amazement, when I had kept my third day for her, she was finally and forever delivered from the hands of evil angels. And I had afterwards a satisfaction of seeing not only her, so brought home to the Lord, that she was admitted to our church, but also many other, even some scores of young people, awakened by the pictures of hell exhibited in her sufferings, to flee from the wrath to come. Our church, having hitherto extended a church watch to none but our communicants and confined baptism to them and their children, I was desirous to bring the church into a posture more agreeable to the advice of our synod in the year 1662. My method for it was this. Having first in a sermon at a church meeting declared my own persuasion about this matter, I permitted no public disputation to follow upon it but I employed fit hands to carry an instrument containing my sentiments and purposes to the brethren of the church, who generally signed a desire and address to myself, thereto and next that I would act accordingly. As for the few brethren who were disaffected to my proceedings, I carried it so peaceably and obligingly and yet resolutely towards them that they patiently let me take my way. And some of them told me they thought I did well to do as I did, though they could not yet come to see as I did. Thus was our church quietly brought to a point which before this cost no little difficulty. But my charge of such as now submitted themselves under my ecclesiastical watch was exceedingly increased. Lord, let thy grace be sufficient for me. In the spring of this year, I did ever now and then keep days of secret humiliation before the Lord, so many indeed that I found myself not able well to keep exact records of them all. I also kept one or two days of thanksgiving in my study. 
But on one of these days my special errand to the Lord was this, that whereas his good angels did by his order many good offices for his people, he would please to grant to me the enjoyment of all those angelical kindnesses which used to be done by his order for his chosen servants. I requested only those kindnesses which the word of God mentioned as belonging to the heirs of salvation. But I requested that I might receive these kindnesses in a manner and measure more transcendent than what the great corruptions and the generality of good men permitted them to be made partakers of. Now that I might be qualified for this favor, I first entreated that I may not, and engaged that I will not, on the score of any angelical communications, forsake the conduct of the Lord's written word, but apply myself more than ever to the assiduous and reverent contemplation of that word. I then proceeded to consider what things would render me singularly agreeable to the holy angels of God, and for my assistance in those things I humbly implored the grace of the Lord. It was now my purpose to be entirely devoted to God in all the ways of dedicating holiness, to be continually contriving how to glorify God and be an eminently serviceable, to be much in studies upon the person, but especially upon the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which things the angels desire to look into, to render myself more useful to my neighbors in their afflictions, not only relieving the poor, but also the sick, to which purpose I would collect at leisure a fit number of most parable and effectual remedies for all diseases and publish them to the world so by my hand will be done things that the angels love to do. Finally, to conceal with all prudent secrecy whatever extraordinary things I may perceive done for me by the angels who love secrecy in their administrations, I do now believe that some great things are to be done for me by the angels of God. On March 28th, Tuesday, between 4 and 5 a.m., God gave to my wife a safe deliverance of a son. It was a child of a most comely and hearty look, and all my friends entertained his birth with very singular expressions of satisfaction. But the child was attended with a very strange disaster, for it had such an obstruction in the bowels as utterly hindered the passage of its ordure from it. We used all the methods that could be devised for its ease, but nothing we did could save the child from death. It languished in its agonies until Saturday, April 1st, about 10 p.m., and so died unbaptized. There was a conjunction of many and heavy trials in this dispensation of God, but God enabled me to bear them all with an unexpected measure of resignation to his holy will. I did not suffer such a discomposure in my thoughts as to hinder me from preaching both parts of the day following, in the forenoon on Hebrews 11.17, in the afternoon on Job 2, verse 10, and to exemplify to my congregation a little of the faith, patience, and thankfulness, which I then preached to them. On the Monday the child was buried with a very numerous and honorable attendance of my neighbors, and on one of the gravestones I wrote only the epitaph reserved for a glorious resurrection, 
When the body of the child was opened, we found that the lower end of the large intestine, instead of being musculous, as it should have been, was membranous and altogether closed up. I had great reason to suspect a witchcraft in this preternatural accident, because my wife a few weeks before her deliverance was affrighted with an horrible specter in our porch, which fright caused her bowels to turn within her, and the specters which both before and after tormented a young woman in our neighborhood bragged of their giving my wife that fright, in hopes, they said, of doing mischief to her infant at least, if not to the mother. And besides all this, the child was no sooner born, but a suspected child sent to my father a letter full of railing against myself, in which she told him he little knew what might quickly befall some of his posterity. However, I made little use of this, and laid little stress on this conjecture, desiring to submit to the will of my Heavenly Father, without which not a sparrow falls to the ground. In the summer of the year, 1693, my good God helped me to do some other little services for his dearest name. I had often wished for an opportunity to bear my testimonies against the sin of uncleanness in which so many of my generation pollute themselves. A young woman of Haverhill and a Negro woman also of this town were under sentence of death for the murdering of their bastard children. Many and many a weary hour did I spend in the prison to serve the souls of those miserable creatures, and I had opportunities in my own congregation to speak to them and from them to vast multitudes of others. Their execution was ordered to have been upon the lecture of another, but by a very strange providence, without any seeking of my own, or any respect to me that I know of, the order for their execution was altered and it fell on my lecture day. I did then, with the special assistance of heaven, make and preach a sermon upon Job 36, verse 14, whereat one of the greatest assemblies ever known in these parts of the world was come together. I'd obtained from the young woman a pathetical instrument in writing in which she owned her own miscarriages and warned a rising generation of theirs. Towards the close of my sermon, I read the instrument to the congregation and made what use was proper of it. I accompanied the wretches to their execution, but extremely fear all our labors were lost upon them, however sanctified to many others. The sermon was immediately printed with another, which I had formerly uttered on a like occasion, entitled Warnings from the Dead, and it was greedily bought up, a hope to the attainment of the ends which I had so long desired. It was afterwards reprinted in London. Moreover, a fast was kept in the old meeting house a day after the commencement, occasioned by an extreme drought on these parts. I preached all the day, and God inclined some of his people to print the sermons. They are abroad under the titles of the day and the work of the day. Who am I that God should thus use and read my poor thoughts for the good of my whole generation? Moreover, the good people of reading saw cause in July to keep a day of prayer on the behalf of their young people, that the rising generation of the place may be made a praying and a pious generation, and they chose a time of my direction for it. I went and spent a day with them and preached to a vast assembly on Psalm 119, verse 9, being entertained with a very extraordinary attention and affection in the auditory.
and I hope with successes very comfortable. And because I foresaw an inexpressible deal of service like to be thereby done for the church of God, not only here but abroad in Europe, especially at the approaching Reformation, I formed a design to endeavor the church history of this country. By the way, that became the works of Christ in America. Laying my design before the neighboring ministers, they encouraged it. And accordingly, I set myself to cry mightily unto the Lord that if my undertaking in this might be for his glory, he would grant me his countenance and assistance in it. However, I did not actually begin this work till the latter end of the year. In the month of July, a most pestilential fever was brought among us by the fleet coming into our harbor from the West Indies. It was a distemper which in less than a week's time usually carried off my neighbors with very direful symptoms of turning yellow, vomiting and bleeding every way and so dying, though for diverse days after the first decombiture the disease did, but as it were, play with the sick. God was pleased most mercifully to preserve me from this pestilence, for I had undertaken one Lord's Day morning in answer to a desire from some commanders in the army to visit a considerable party of the soldiers lately arrived from their disastrous expedition at Martinico, and now rendezvoused on our islands. Had I proceeded in this rash undertaking to go and pray and preach, among an herd that were so infectious, in probability it would have cost me my life, as it proved mortal to others that spent their time among them, especially while our physicians had not yet learned a way of encountering the distemper. But while I was on board the governor's barge in the harbor, going down, as I was taken so vehemently sick that my friends would not let me go any further, I was well as soon as I came home, and in the afternoon preached in my own congregation where the admirable and principal commanders of the fleet came to hear me. Knowing the horrid atheism and wickedness of these that were now come to be my hearers, I preached to them on Psalm 119, verse 59, and my God helped me in it. I believed t'was a good angel, which there struck me sick. And by the ministration of those good and kind spirits, I believe I was afterwards put upon such methods as God blessed for the preservation of my health. I endeavor now to accommodate myself to the humbling dispensations of God among my neighbors by humbling myself under those dispensations. I did set myself by days of prayer, kept secretly as well as publicly, not only to obtain my own preservation, but also to divert the wrath of heaven from the neighborhood. Bore my testimony as earnestly as I could against the views that I judged among the causes of the calamity, especially when I preached on 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And such of those vices as called for the correction of the magistrate, I hope I did effectually stir up some of our justices to prosecute. I took occasion also to quicken and assist such preparations for death as were in this dangerous time to be pressed with more vehemency, especially by preaching on Psalm 90, verse 12, and on Psalm 119, verse 19. And I essayed further to recommend preservatives from the dangers of the time, especially by preaching on Psalm 57, verse 1, Accept of me, O my God, 
In these dying times I found the grace of God helping me to some singular dispositions. I was now more willing and ready to die than perhaps I had ever yet been in all my life. This world was grown more little to me, and the world whereto I am going was grown more glorious, more sensible in my apprehensions of it. My translation from this world to that would have been with less convulsion, perhaps, than ever heretofore. Moreover, I now took up resolutions with God's help to be more diligent than ever, in that expression of pure religion, visit the widow and the orphan. I designed that every week I would ordinarily do something at visiting the headless families in my flock and praying with them and for them. About this time, the Lord accepted me and employed me to do a singular service for my ungrateful country, besides other little services which I have been doing for it continually. I wrote such a true and brief representation of the country with the posture both of men and of things in it, as all the thinking friends of the country would have thought it worth a vast sum of money if anyone could have laid before the king such a state of our affairs. This representation I directed to the king himself, and using of certain particular methods with our governor, it was by the good providence of heaven conveyed with all the secrecy desirable to the king's own hand, who read it with much satisfaction, and I hope formed from thence in his own royal mind those characters of the country whereof we shall reap the good effects for many a day. Among other services which I was desirous to do for my glorious Lord about the latter end of the summer, this was one. I considered with myself that the time of winter was a time of leisure with most of my neighbors hereupon. I contrived with myself how I might with as charming a mixture of religion and ingenuity as I could invite my neighbors to improve the leisure of the winter for the glory of God and their own spiritual and eternal advantage. So I did, with much labor and study, compose a book which I entitled Winter Meditations. And when winter came, I published it. Towards the latter end of the summer, now running, I began one of the greatest works that ever I undertook in my life, with many cries to the God of heaven that he would, by his good spirit, assist me in my undertaking, and that he would employ his good angels to supply me from time to time with materials for it. I set myself every morning to write upon a portion of scripture some illustration that should have in it something of curiosity. I considered that all the learning in the world might be made gloriously subservient to the illustration of the scripture, and that no professed commentary had hitherto given so much of illustration to it as might be given. I considered that multitudes of particular texts had, especially of later years, been most notably illustrated in the scattered books of learned men than in any of the ordinary commentators, and I considered that the treasures of illustrations for the Bible, dispersed in the volumes of this age, might be fetched altogether by a laborious ingenuity. Accordingly, resolving still to give the Church of God such displays of its blessed word, as may be more entertaining for the novelty and rarity of them, than any that have been hitherto seen together in any exposition, and yet such as may be acceptable to the most judicious for the demonstrative truth of them, and to the most orthodox, for the regard had to the analogy of faith in all, 
I now began my great work. I thought that after the rate of one illustration in a day, I might, if the Lord would spare my life, one seven years, more, have without sensible hardship gotten together a number of golden keys for his precious word, and learned charming and curious notes on his word, far beyond any that had yet seen a light. Or if I died in the midst of my work, yet my labor might not be in vain in the Lord, yet it would be worth the while, though I furnish none but myself with such accomplishments for a minister of the New Testament. I have since found a marvelous providence of heaven, directing my endeavors thus to make his word run and be glorified. And the Lord unquestionably, by his angelical operation, throws into my hands continually those assistances for this work that oblige me to thank his name exceedingly and go on abounding in this work of the Lord. I purpose to entitle this work Biblia Americana. About a week after the beginning of September, being solicitous to do some further service for the name of God, I took a journey to Salem. There I not only sought a further supply of my furniture for my church history, but also endeavored that the complete history of the late witchcrafts and possessions might not be lost. I judged that the preservation of that history might, in a while, be a singular benefit to the church and to the world, which made me solicitous about it. Moreover, I was willing to preach the word of God to the numerous congregations at Salem, which I did on both parts of the Sabbath, not only with the most glorious assistance of heaven, but also with some assurance of good thereby to be done among the people. But I had one singular unhappiness which befell me in this journey. I had largely written three discourses which I designed both to preach at Salem and hereafter to print. These notes were before the Sabbath stolen from me, with such circumstances that I am somewhat satisfied the specters or agents in the invisible world were the robbers. This disaster had liked to have disturbed my designs for the Sabbath, but God helped me to remember a great part of what I had written, and to deliver also many other things which else I had not now made use of, so that the devil got nothing. Among other things which entertained me at Salem one was a discourse with one Mrs. Carver, who had been strangely visited with some shining spirits which were good angels in her opinion of them. She intimated several things to me, whereof some were to be kept secret. She also told me that a new storm of witchcraft would fall upon the country to chastise the iniquity that was used in the willful smothering and covering of the last and that many fierce opposites to the discovery of that witchcraft would be by this convinced. To my surprise, when I came home, I found one of my neighbors horribly arrested by evil spirits. I then begged of God that he would help me wisely to discharge my duty upon this occasion and avoid gratifying of the evil angels in any of their expectations. I did then concern myself to use and get as much prayer as I could for the afflicted young woman, and at the same time to forbid either her from accusing any of her neighbors, or others from inquiring anything of her. Nevertheless, a wicked man wrote a most lying libel to revile my conduct in these manners, which drove me to the blessed God, with my supplications that he would wonderfully protect me, as well from unreasonable men acted by the devils, as from the devils themselves. 
I did at first, it may be, too much resent the injuries of that libel, but God brought good out of it. It occasioned the multiplication of my prayers before him. It very much promoted the works of humiliation and mortification in my soul. Indeed, the devil made that libel on occasion of those paroxysms in the town that would have exceedingly gratified him if God had not helped me to forgive and forget the injuries done to me and to be deaf to the solicitations of those that would have had me so to have resented the injuries of some few persons as to have deserted the lecture at the old meeting house. When the afflicted young woman had undergone six weeks of preternatural calamities, and when God had helped me to keep just three days of prayer on her behalf, I had the pleasure of seeing the same success which I used to have on my third fast for such possessed people as have been cast into my cares. God gave her a glorious deliverance. Their remarkable circumstances whereof I have more fully related in the history of the whole business. Editor's Note The afflicted young lady was Margaret Rule, of whom Mather wrote an account which fell into possession of Caliph, who threatened to publish it. Mather became alarmed, threatened to arrest Caliph for slander, called him one of the worst of liars, and denounced him from the pulpit. Cotton Mather continues, As for my missing notes, the possessed young woman of her own accord inquired whether I missed him not. She told me the specters bragged in her hearing that they had robbed me of them. She added, Being concerned, for they confess they can't keep them always from you, you shall have them all brought you again. They were notes on Psalm 119, verse 19, and Psalm 90, verse 12, and Haggai 1, 7, and 9. I was tender of them, and often prayed to God that they might be returned. On the 5th of October following, every leaf of my notes again came into my hands, though they were in 18 separate quarters of sheets. They were found dropped here and there about the streets of Lynn. But how they came to be so dropped, I cannot imagine and as I much wonder at the exactness of their preservation. It pleased God that on October 3rd my daughter Mary was taken very dangerously sick of a fever with a vomiting in the worms. I was by a strange diversion upon my spirit hindered from importunate prayer for the life of the sick child. But at length on October 5th in the evening I had my heart wonderfully melted in prayers at my father Philip's where the child lay sick. I demanded not the life of the child, but I resigned to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ with such rapturous assurances of the divine love to me and mine as would richly have made amends for the death of more children if God had been called for them. I was unaccountably assured not only that this child shall be happy forever, but that I never should have any child except what should be an everlasting temple to the Spirit of God, yea, that I and mine should be together in the kingdom of God, world without end. About six o'clock in the morning, following, it being the sixth day of the month and the sixth day of the week, the child, near a month short of two years old, expired. The next day it was buried in Boston with an honorable attendance at the funeral. On one of the gravestones I wrote, Gone, but not lost. On the day following was our communion at the Lord's table. I then administered the sacrament, and before it preached on Genesis 22, verse 12. Now I know that thou fearest God. Handling that observation, 
A good man may by many tokens come to know that he has in him the fear of God, but a right behavior under afflictive trials is a token that will more especially and eminently serve to make it known. And I hope that I now so exemplify such a behavior as not only to embolden my approaches to the supper of the Lord, but also to direct and instruct my neighborhood with what frame to encounter their afflictions. On the Tuesday ensuing, namely on October 10th, which was a day of military diversions to the whole town of Boston, I set apart a day for prayer with fasting in my study. I then considered my many humbling circumstances, both as to my sins and as to my sorrows, especially in the breaches made upon my family, as also in the cursed reproaches with which this unworthy, ungodly, ungrateful people do load not myself only, but both of my fathers also. On this day my God gave me great assurance of his purpose to bestow many blessings, and particularly that he would make my name and the names of both my fathers also to become honorable among his people, that he will support us, comfort us, and at last requite us good for all the evil we meet with. On this day I also visited a possessed young woman in the neighborhood, whose distresses were not the least occasion of my being thus before the Lord. I wrestled with God for her, and among other things, I pleaded that God had made it my office and business to engage my neighbors in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this young woman had expressed her compliance with my invitations to that service only that the evil spirits now hindered her from doing what she had vowed, therefore that I had a sort of right to demand her deliverance from these invading devils, and to demand such a liberty for her as might make her capable of glorifying my glorious Lord, which I did accordingly. In the close of this day, a wonderful spirit in white and bright raiment with a face unseen appeared to this young woman, and bid her account me her father, and regard me and obey me as her father, for he said the Lord had given her to me, and she should now within a few days be delivered. It proved accordingly. Besides the other praying and pious meetings which I have been continually serving in our neighborhood a little after this time, a company of poor Negroes of their own accord addressed me for my countenance to a design which they had, of erecting such a meeting for the welfare of their miserable nation that were servants among us. I allowed their design and went one evening and prayed and preached on Psalm 68, verse 31 with them, and gave them the following orders, which I insert only for curiosity of the occasion. We, the miserable children of Adam and of Noah, thankfully admiring and accepting the free grace of God that offers to save us from our miseries by the Lord Jesus Christ, freely resolve with his help to become the servants of that glorious Lord and that we may be assisted in the service of our heavenly master, we now join together in a company in which the following rules are to be observed. 1. It shall be our endeavor to meet the evening after the Sabbath, and pray together by turns, one to begin and another to conclude the meeting. And between the two prayers, the psalm shall be sung and a sermon repeated. This way would we spend the evening which we observe too many of our condition to misspend to the dishonor of God and the prejudice of those to whom they do belong. Number two, our coming to the meeting shall never be without the leave of such as have power over us. 
and we will be careful that our meeting may begin and conclude between the hours of seven and nine, and that we may not be unseasonably absent from the families whereto we may partain. Number three is we will, with the help of God at all times, avoid all wicked company, so we will receive none into our meeting but such as have sensibly reformed their lives from all manner of wickedness, and therefore none shall be admitted without the knowledge and consent of the minister of God in this place, and to whom we will also carry every person that seeks for an admission among us to be by him examined, instructed, and exhorted. Continuing on in the diary, the rest of the winter brought little with it that was remarkable. I reviewed and revived the orders of our young men's meetings and went and preached to them to prevent the snares of Satan which may threaten their welfare. There is a copy thereof since printed at the end of my book of early religion. Considering that there is a good number of poor and old people in our almshouse, who cannot often come to the public worship of God, especially at this time of the year. I went and spent an afternoon, I prayed and I preached on James 2 verse 5 among them, with the comfortable assistance and I hope acceptance of heaven. And one memorable providence I must not forget, a young woman being arrested, possessed, afflicted by evil angels. Her tormentors made my image or picture to appear before her and then made themselves masters of her tongue so far that she began in her fits to complain that I threatened her and molested her, though when she came out of them she owned that they could not so much as make my dead shape do her any harm, and that they put a force upon her tongue in her exclamations. Greatest outcries when she was herself were for my poor prayers to be concerned on her behalf. Being upon this extremely sensible, how much a malicious town and land would insult over me if such a lying piece of a story would fly abroad, that the devils in my shape tormented the neighborhood, I was put upon some agonies and singular sallies and efforts of soul in the resignation of my name to the Lord, content that if he had no further service for my name, it should be torn to pieces with all the reproaches in the world." But I cried to the Lord as for the deliverance of my name from the malice of hell, so for the deliverance of the young woman whom the powers of hell had now seized upon. And behold, without any further noise, a possessed person upon my praying by her was delivered from her captivity on the very same day that she fell into it. And a whole plot of the devil to reproach a poor servant of the Lord Jesus Christ was defeated. About the middle of January, my little and my only Catherine was taken so dangerously sick, the small hope of her life was left unto us. In my distress, when I saw the Lord thus quenching the coal that was left unto me, and raining out of my bosom one that had lived so long with me as to still a room there, and a lamb that was indeed unto me as a daughter, I cast myself at the feet of his holy sovereignty. When I was going to resign the dying child in a prayer for that purpose over it, I took the Bible in my hand, resolving to seek and read it first, some agreeable portion of the scripture. The first place it accidentally fell under my view was the story of our Lord's raising the little daughter of the ruler of the synagogue in the eighth chapter of Luke. Amazed at the pertinency of this place, I read it with tears, and then with more tears turned it into a prayer wherein I freely gave up the child to the Lord, assured it, and whatever children he ever gave me should be the temples of his good spirit, 
the subjects of his kingdom, and the vessels of his glory forever. But I also beg for the life of the child in this world, promising to the Lord with his help, that I would bring her up for him, and that I would likewise essay to do some special service quickly for the rising generation in this land. Immediately the child fell into a critical and plentiful bleeding, and recovered from that hour unto the admiration of us all. This day to prepare my own heart for all events which threaten my family and express what should be in the heart of others on such events. I preach a sermon on those words. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Random, though tis hardly worth remembering, many families of my flock, residing on the other side of the water, put themselves to considerable trouble every Lord's Day to attend to my ministry. Now, though it would be a considerable diminution of my auditory, yet I have often called upon them to gather and settle a church among themselves, and offered them all the assistance that I could possibly give them in their so doing. At length, perceiving that the thing which hindered them was that it would be too great an expense for so small a village to maintain their minister themselves, I made them an offer that if they would furnish themselves with a worthy minister, I would assist his maintenance as far as I could, and even abate my own poor salary for it. They wondered at the generosity of these tenders, and I glorified the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel by making them. Nevertheless, they never accepted them. That reading was for the end of that year of the Diary of Cotton Mather. To finish this recording, I want to read an article that was printed for the North American Review for April 1869, Defending Cotton Mather and the Salem Witchcraft Incident by William Frederick Poole. I quoted from this when I taught on the life of Cotton Mather and the Salem Witch Trials. Nearly two centuries have passed away since the saddest tragedy of early New England history was enacted at Salem and Salem Village. Instead of fading out from the memory of men, the incidents of Salem witchcraft are receiving more attention today than at any former period. The fact of its being the last great exhibition of a superstition which had cursed humanity for thousands of years, and that every incident connected with it has been preserved in the form of record, deposition, or narrative, imparts to it a peculiar interest, and one which will be permanent. It is not as a record of horrors, but as a field of psychological study, that the subject will retain its hold on the minds of men. Victims and suffered at Salem were hurried to the gallows by witchcraft year after year in a single county of England during the 17th century, but the details of English trials in so common were generally not thought worth preserving. Probably as many authentic and reliable information respecting the Salem proceedings is extent as of the trials of 30,000 victims who suffered from the same cause in England. How did the Salem delusion originate? Who was responsible for it? Was it wholly the result of fraud and deception? Or were there psychological phenomena attending it which have never been explained? Is there any resemblance between the proceedings of the afflicted children of Salem Village and modern spiritual manifestations? Were the clergy of New England or any other profession or class in the community especially implicated in it? Any one of these questions affords a theme for discussion. We propose, however, to review the incidents of this fearful tragedy for the purpose of re-examining the historical evidence on which 
In a popular estimation, so large a portion of the culpability for those executions has been laid upon one individual. In 1831, Mr. Upham printed his lectures on Salem witchcraft, in which he brought some very grave charges against Cotton Mather, as being the contriver, instigator, and promoter of the delusion, and the chief conspirator against the lives of the sufferers. These charges have been repeated by Mr. Quincy in his History of Harvard University, by Mr. Peabody in his Life of Cotton Mather, by Mr. Bancroft, and by nearly all historical writers since that date. Mr. Upham, after an interval of 36 years, has reiterated and emphasized his original accusations in his elaborate history of Salem witchcraft printed in 1867. They have obtained a lodgment in all the minor and school histories, and the present generation of youth is taught that 19 innocent persons were hanged, and one was pressed to death to gratify the vanity, ambition, and stolid credulity of Mr. Cotton Mather. Anyone imagines that we are stating the case too strongly, let him try an experiment on the first bright boy he meets by asking, Who got up Salem witchcraft? And with a promptness that will startle him, he will receive the reply, Cotton Mather. Let him try another boy with the question, Who was Cotton Mather? And the answer will come, The man who was on horseback and hung witches. An examination of the historical textbooks used in our schools will show where these ideas originated. We have the latest editions of a dozen such manuals before us. But the following examples must suffice. Quote, Cotton Mather, an eccentric but influential minister, took up the matter, and great excitement spread through the colony. Among those hanged was a minister named Burroughs, who had denounced the proceedings of Mather and his associates. At his execution, Mather appeared among the crowd on horseback and quieted the people with quotations from Scripture. Mather gloried in these judicial murders. Quackenbach, School History of the United States, 1868, pages 138 to 140. Another quote. Cotton Mather and other popular men wrote in its defense. Caleb Hasidison of Boston exposed Mather's credulity and greatly irritated the minister. Mather called Caliph a weaver turned minister, a coal from hell, and prosecuted him for slander. In quote. Lawson's Pictorial History of the United States, 1868, page 106. We give two other extracts from more elaborate works. New England at that time, 1692, was unfortunate in having among her ministers a pedantic, painstaking, self-complacent, ill-balanced man, Cotton Mather. His great industry and verbal learning gave him undue currency, and his writings were much read. He was indefatigable in magnifying himself in his office. In an age when light reading consisted of polemic pamphlets, it is easy to see that the stories of Margaret's rules, dire afflictions, would find favor and prepared the public mind for a stretch of credulity almost equal to his own in, quote, Eliot's New England History, 1867, Volume 2, page 43. Mr. Bancroft adopts Substantially, the views of Mr. Upham, Cotton Mather's boundless vanity gloried in the assaults of evil angels upon the country. To cover his own confusion, he got up a case of witchcraft in his own parish. Was Cotton Mather honestly credulous? He is an example how far selfishness under the form of vanity and ambition can blind the higher faculties, stupefy the judgment and dupe consciousness itself, in quote. But we need not pause over Mr. Bancroft's 
secondhand and rhetorical statements, Mr. Hildreth gave some attention to the original authorities and saw that the wild assertions of Mr. Upham and Mr. Bancroft were untenable. It is to be regretted that with his candid and impartial methods of study, he did not go far enough to reach the whole truth. He says, quote, the suggestion that Cotton Mather, for purposes of his own, deliberately got up this witchcraft illusion and forced it upon a doubtful and hesitating people is utterly absurd. Mather's position, convictions, and temperament alike called him to serve on this occasion as the organ, exponent, and stimulator of the popular faith. These views respecting Mr. Mather's connection with the Salem trials are to be found in no publication of a date prior to 1831, when Mr. Upham's lectures were published. The clergy of New England, indeed, soon after the delusion abated and subsequently had been blamed for fostering the excitement. An increase in Cotton Mather, father and son, being the most prominent clergyman in the colony, both staunch believers in the reality of witchcraft and writers on the subject were criticized more freely than any others. But these charges were very different from those we are to consider. Mr. Upham, in the appendix to his second edition printed in 1832, sets forth and maintains for his opinions the claim of originality to which he is entitled. The accuracy of his statements respecting Mr. Mather's character had been questioned. Mr. Upham, in his reply, admits that previously to the investigation of the subject of his lectures, a shadow of doubt had never been suggested respecting Mr. Mather's moral and Christian character. He adds, quote, It was with the greatest reluctance that such a doubt was permitted to enter my mind. It seemed incredible, nay, almost impossible, that a man who had been at the head of all the great religious operations of his day, who had been the instrument of so many apparent conversions, and who devoted so many hours and days and weeks of his life to fasting and prayer, could in reality be dishonest and corrupt. But when the evidence of the case required me to believe that in the transactions which I had undertaken to relate, his character did actually appear in this dark and disgraceful light, a regard for truth and justice compelled me to express my convictions." End quote. In this discussion, we shall treat Mr. Upham's lectures in history in the same connection as the latter is an expansion and defense of the views presented in the former. In the history, Cotton Mather appears more frequently and in a more unfavorable light than in the lectures, and many of the allusions to him are not referred to in the index. He comes in when we should least expect him and always with evil purpose plotting and counterplotting, disappointed when the trials were over, planning new excitement and other trials in Boston, unrepentant when everybody else had taken to the confessional, wrecked in reputation almost before his career had commenced and going to his grave full of remorse and disappointment. Upham is never at a loss to know what Mr. Mather contemplated on any occasion, what he longed for, what he would have been glad to have what he looked upon with secret pleasure and what he was secretly and cunningly endeavoring to do. Mr. Peabody also knows when Cotton Mather was in his element, and what he enjoyed the great felicity of. We do not hope to follow these writers into the dark recesses of Mr. Mather's mind, but in the course of this investigation we shall take up some of their statements and examine them in the light of evidence that may be regarded as historical.
A few words touching the widespread belief in witchcraft prevalent in the 17th century may prepare some of our readers better to appreciate the events, which are more particularly to come under our notice. No nation, no age, no form of religion or irreligion may claim an immunity from this superstition. The Reformers were as zealous in this manner as the Catholics. It is estimated that during the 16th and 17th century, 200,000 persons were executed, mostly burned in Europe, Germany furnishing one half of the victims, and England 30,000. Statutes against witchcraft were enacted in the reigns of Henry VI, Henry VIII, Elizabeth, and James I. Learning and religion were no safeguards against this delusion. Familiar letters of James Howell, who after the restoration of Charles II was historiographer royal, gives a frightful picture of the extent of the delusion in England. Under the date of February 3rd, 1646, he writes, We have multitudes of witches among us, for in Essex and Suffolk there were above 200 indicted within these two years, and above the one half of them executed. I speak it with horror, God guard us from the devil. Again, February 20th, 1647, quote, Within the compass of two years, near upon 3,000 witches were arraigned and the major part of them executed in Essex and Suffolk only. Scotland swarms with them now more than ever, and persons of good quality are executed daily. End quote. A general history of the witchcraft delusion and trials in England is a disorderatum which we commend to the attention commend to the attention of English antiquaries, which show that no New England man has any occasion to apologize for the credulity and superstition of his ancestors in the presence of an Englishman, in quote. In New England, the earliest witch execution of which any details have been preserved was that of Margaret Jones of Charleston in June 1648. Governor Winthrop presided at the trial signed a death warrant, and wrote the report of the case in his journal. No indictment, process, or other evidence in the case can be found unless it be an order of the General Court of May 10, 1648, that after the course taken in England for the discovery of witches, a certain woman not named and her husband were confined and watched. So I recommend this article from the North American Review for April 1869, which can be found at books.google.com, if you do a search on Cotton Mather and the Salem Witchcraft by William Frederick Poole, Boston, 1869.